0: Hello and welcome to the Health Report podcast with me, Tegan Taylor, as Norman Swan takes a break this week. Coming up on the show, what effect did Melbourne's tough lockdown have on babies? Australia's on track to eliminate cervical cancer, except in this one critical group, How much healthier would we all be if doctors could prescribe social connection? And health reporter Lauren Roberts joins me to answer your questions in our mailbag section at the end of the show. Remember, you can email your questions and comments anytime to healthreport at abc.net.au. But first, what if you could reduce the amount of sugar in Australian diets at no cost to industry and generate revenue that could be spent on improving people's health, Sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? Well, taxing sugary soft drinks is regularly suggested as a way to improve diets, but it's a tough sell politically because drink manufacturers argue it will hurt business. Well, a new initiative in the UK has used a tiered taxing system to encourage manufacturers to reduce the amount of sugar in drinks. And it looks like while people are buying less sugary drinks, somehow the drinks industry hasn't taken a financial hit. The results were recently published in the BMJ and Alexandra Jones from the George Institute for Global Health reviewed the paper and wrote an accompanying editorial and I spoke to her earlier.
1: Around 50 jurisdictions worldwide have some kind of health-related tax on sugary drinks. In Australia today, we know that the two major political parties have said um, they're not interested in this tax, and that's not that surprising because announcing a tax isn't really an election-winning strategy. (laughs) But I think that... um You know, for me, this study is just another piece in the puzzle which shows that it's not really about if, but when Australia would get a tax on sugary drinks.
0: Why do you think it's inevitable?
1: Because this is a really promising policy. It's one of the few policies as well in health where you actually can generate revenue that you can use to fund other health policies. And I think that's why we've seen global interest in it. And the other main reason why is because they're working worldwide. And so this study out of the UK led by the researchers from Cambridge really showed that Not only did it shift the way consumers are purchasing drinks and they're getting less sugar, but it also didn't harm industry profits. So that is an important piece of the puzzle when you're talking about getting the political will to put a tax on the soft drink industry.
0: If they're not harming industry profits, like what are people buying instead? Are they healthy if people are buying, say, diet soft drinks instead?
1: Yeah, so the really interesting thing about the UK tax is that it's a tiered tax and that's where it's uh, unique worldwide. So they put, I think it's a higher rate of tax if you've got over 8% sugar in your drink. There's a low rate of tax if you're between 5 and 8%. And if you've got under 5% sugar in your drink, you don't pay any tax. And so that's what they've put a tax on the manufacturers. And what happened was manufacturers changed the products quite quickly, actually. And they cut a lot of sugar out of drinks so that they didn't have to pay so much tax. What it means is that consumers, Even if they still buy the old drinks they used to buy, so they might not have changed their behaviour at all, they're actually getting less sugar. And and that's what this study showed. It showed... They're both buying less of the high-tax drinks, but they're buying more of the no-tax drinks, which are things like bottled water and things that are lower in sugar, and that means they're getting less sugar in their diet overall.
0: Right, so it becomes an incentive for companies to reformulate their products.
1: Yeah, and one of the benefits of reformulation, like I said, is that it doesn't rely on changing consumer behaviour. So a lot of the sugar taxes around the world right now have been targeted at consumers and changing the price, the sticker price you know, at the point of sale, and they have shown promising impacts, but it still relies on consumers making better decisions all the time. When you do something like this reformulation, you're just taking huge quantities of sugar out of the food supply, um, and that benefits everyone, even the people that don't notice that it's a healthier product.
0: Are people just going to switch to artificially flavoured or artificially sweetened drinks?
1: Yeah, so one consequence of this tax is that companies have cut the sugar and in some cases they've replaced that with other types of what we're calling non-nutritive or artificial sweeteners. Obviously, we don't want to just take out one harmful substance and sub in another harmful substance and that wouldn't be a good public health outcome. What we know right now is that we don't have that evidence that artificial sweeteners are bad. I know consumers are cynical of them. Um, what we know is they're safe to consume You know, now. They're not going to make you sick overnight. But we've also never consumed them in so many products in such high quantities.
0: But we don't have really clear evidence that they're harmful. And we do have quite a lot of evidence that sugar isn't great in large quantities. Mm-hmm.
1: That's correct. And that's why I think, you know, we do support these policies because we do know we want to reduce sugar. And ideally, we want to steer people away from both the full sugar drinks and the, you know, artificially sweetened substitutes in the long run. But I think that as a first step, if you get a person that drinks Coke every day, it is a good outcome for health to get them to switch to Diet Coke.
0: Would you just cut and paste the UK approach here in Australia if it was up to you to make these decisions? Or is there other evidence from other countries that would also inform the ideal situation here in Australia?
1: The UK example is a good one. Each tax would have to be tailored to the particular tax system of the country. So that's why you need to get legal advice and maybe, you know, we could build it into the GST here, for example. But I think that the tiered example is really interesting because it shows that if you give a company a profit motive to change their product, they'll change it. It's not rocket science, but it works a lot better than what we've had here, which is really voluntary approaches. So asking companies to just out of the goodness of their heart cut out sugar or salt from their products and it hasn't really been effective because they just don't have a good incentive to do so.
0: So how does the money flow here? Because you said before that if you put a tax on it then you can channel those funds into other public health campaigns but then you also said it hasn't affected their bottom line.
1: I guess the companies are making more money off the low-sugar drinks. But in the meantime, the government is taking money from the high-sugar products, and they are... In the UK, they've allocated it to initiatives to improve children's health, for example. In some other places, like in Philadelphia the state, I guess it's the city government there, have used the money to fund childcare because that was an issue for them was really politically important and they thought that it benefited a lot of people. So it's really up to the government who implements the tax to decide what is the issue in their country that they need to fund and that's a way of also building, increasing the public support for the tax.
0: What do you see as being the biggest barrier in Australia to just implementing something like this?
1: Yeah, I think industry opposition is the biggest barrier. We know actually the majority of Australians when surveyed say they support these taxes, but Industry is powerful um, and the food industry, you know, is very close to policymakers in Australia. And what they did a couple of years ago when this issue was sort of rising on the political agenda was announce a voluntary sugar reduction pledge. Um, They made that announcement standing next to Greg Hunt and their message was kind of, you don't need a tax, you don't need to tax us, we'll just voluntarily cut sugar out of our products. And if you look at the terms of that pledge, it's pretty vague. They say they'll reduce sugar by 20 cents over 10 years. Uh, One thing is that it doesn't cover all companies. They could get it, for example, by selling 20% more water. You know, they don't need to necessarily do anything to their worst products. And no one's really independently monitoring it. They're putting out sort of self-reported changes over time. So that initiative is unlikely to be as effective as what we've seen in the UK.
0: Why focus on sugary soft drinks? Like there's lots of things in our food supply that are not optimal for our health why should this be a priority?
1: Because excess sugar consumption is linked to things like tooth decay as well as diabetes, obesity, some cancers and these drinks in particular are a huge source of that sugar in our diets. They make up about half of all the excess added sugars that we're getting and they don't really offer any other nutritional benefit. So they're a really good target for action because unlike other products, like even a cake, say if you eat it, you might compensate later in the day by not eating as much or eating a smaller dinner or you'll at least feel full from eating that other junk with sugar in it. But The thing about drinks is that when you drink them, it's really easy to just consume them as excess calories and not even notice.
0: Dr Alexandra Jones is a research fellow at the George Institute for Global Health and senior lecturer at the University of New South Wales. So how about if the next time you walked into your GP's rooms, you walked out with a prescription for a walking club or an art class or meditation sessions? It's called social prescribing and it's rooted in the fact that the vast majority of our health and well-being has nothing to do with the inside of a hospital or a doctor's surgery. We already know that things like exercise, meditation and human connection are good for us, so maybe doctors should be able to prescribe them as well as medications. Social prescribing has been gaining traction over the past few years, but while there are programs here and there in Australia, it's not embedded in our health system as a whole. Kate Mulligan has directed Canada's first large-scale social prescribing project and spoke about her findings last week at the Australasian Health Consumer Conference Shifting Gears. I spoke to Kate earlier.
2: The work that we're doing on social prescribing happens within community health centers here in the province of Ontario in Canada. And these centers focus on the most marginalized communities, the people facing the biggest barriers to health and well-being. And we see at times some people coming in very regularly for clinical appointments with their doctor or their nurse practitioner for issues that don't really have clinical solutions. They might be lonely and going to see their physician for that reason over and over, or they might have other material needs like food or housing. And social prescribing has shown to be remarkably effective in improving their health and their self-reported sense of well-being and sense of belonging by reconnecting them to social services, either formal or informal. That might be to the local food bank for a material need, but it might also be to a cooking group or to a bereavement group for them, those kinds of activities that connect them to other people who might be going through similar experiences and so on.
0: You're talking about not just the ability for a doctor to prescribe these sorts of social services, but also the provision of those social services in the first place.
2: That's right. And you know, for the most part, in many countries around the world, those services do exist, but they're not particularly well connected to one another. And so we don't know whether they're reaching the people who need the most. And that's one of the benefits of locating social prescribing within primary care, your family doctor's clinic, because that's someone who's probably has a long term relationship with you who really does know what you need or can listen to what you need and refer you to somebody who asks, not what's the matter with you, but what's what matters to you Mm. and can move on from there to connect you to existing services. And when they don't exist, we can use community development principles to create informal programs and services wherever they're needed.
0: Right. So as you say, GPs often do this sort of prescribing informally. What's the purpose of having a formalized social prescribing framework?
2: hmm This is something we hear all the time here in Canada, and I know people are saying it in Australia, too. We already do this. We employed a learning health system approach whereby we collected data and shared it with clinicians in real time about how their clients were doing, about what services they were accessing, and how they felt that that was impacting their health. And we saw a dramatic improvement in the clinician's view that, yes, this was part of their scope of practice, and that, yes, it was having an impact on the well-being of their clients in a way that they sort of intuited before, but actually couldn't demonstrate for sure. And so it's that creation of that evidence base that's so important for growing the work. And so that's why the formalization is important. And for those people doing the work of health promotion, community development, social service programming, they often haven't had the data, the evidence they need to demonstrate to the health systems that the work they do are actually net assets to these systems, not costs. They're not a frill or an add-on. They should be core to what we consider to be health services because they do save money and they're more effective and more appropriate in many cases for addressing what's really going on with people. I guess though, unless it's done really well, it could put more pressure on GPs who are already
0: very stretched.
2: Well, that's not our experience. Our experience has been that, you know, they don't need to know the solution. They don't need to know very much about the issue. They just need to know that there's an issue that's beyond their clinical scope of practice. And then they can make a referral to a link worker or a social coordinator who is the one who has the capacity to really take the time that's needed to listen, to walk alongside the client and to know the assets available in the community and make the connection. So that person can be a much less experienced Expensive human resource than a clinician, and that frees up the clinician's time to focus on the things that they're trained for, where their expertise is most needed. So the idea is that it does free up their time. There's a small subset of clients who will start to see their GP more often. That's because they're demonstrating better control over their health and well-being. And our experience is that even without any kind of incentive, physicians and nurse practitioners are signing on to this because it helps them with that 20 or 20 25% of their clients who really keep them up at night. Right. It's not just your GP giving
0: you a script for an art class, but they're connecting you with basically a caseworker who then helps you access those services that already exist in the community.
2: That's right. And it'll depend on the needs of the individual client. There are lots of people with lots of capacity for whom a script might be enough. And a little nudge from the physician that will say, I'm going to follow up with you to make sure you actually followed through, because that's hard for all of us. Mm. But there will be a lot of people who need more support. And that's where that link worker case coordinator person really shines and our research has shown that role is really important and you know we've been trying to do it without huge sustained government funding in that role by repurposing existing staff and we've really learned that that role is important especially for the people facing the most complexity in their social lives.
0: Similar to Canada there are some social prescribing programs here and there in Australia but they're not everywhere. What are some of the biggest barriers that you've seen to these programs being used more widely?
2: I think it does require a sustained government investment to really scale this up. And that's why I'm so excited to hear that social prescribing is really being considered as part of Australia's 10 year health plan. This is the kind of thinking that is required to scale it up at the government scale that's appropriate, you know, whether it's at the state level or at the federal level in a way that makes it a formal part of that healthcare system. And that's sort of where we are here in Canada as well. The summer of Black Lives Matter and the year of COVID-19 have had a huge impact on the way that mainstream health systems understand health equity and the role of communities here in Canada. And so it's just one of the most important tools that we can use in integrating care as a way to address the 80% or more of our health that really is controlled by factors outside healthcare, but also to save money and to better integrate and refer across different kinds of services.
0: Dr Kate Mulligan is an assistant professor at the Dalhousie School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. You're listening to The Health Report, and I'm Tegan Taylor. Australia is on track to being one of the first places in the world to eliminate cervical cancer, except for in one critical group, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women. Despite having access to vaccination and screening programs, Indigenous women get cervical cancer at the same rate as developing regions of the world. So clearly there's a gap here. And my fellow health reporter in the ABC Science Unit, Lauren Roberts, has been looking into this. Hello, Lauren. Hello. Yeah, so
3: this research came from a collaboration between the Australian National University and Cancer Council New South Wales. And it shows that Australia is on track to eliminate cervical cancer within the next decade one of the lead researchers, a woman by the name of Dr. Lisa Wapp, so she has explained that in this sense, elimination doesn't mean get rid of it completely, but rather that the public health uh, problem is kept controlled and at a really low level. So she says cervical cancer isn't like a virus where we can just eliminate it completely and it stops existing. But when we're looking at Australia's Indigenous population, the incidence of cervical cancer needs to be reduced by 74%. There
4: yeah very high rates of cervical cancer still within Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander populations. This is really unacceptable when we think that the national screening program has been around since 1991. And we have known that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women have twice the incidence of other Australian women, and yet the system's really fail to meet those needs.
0: So that's Associate Professor Lisa Watt from the Australian National University. Lauren, can you just take us through some of the programs that Australia currently runs? Yeah. So, as Dr. Watt mentioned, in 1991, Australia introduced
3: its cervical cancer screening program. So that's Pap smears. And then in 19 uh, sorry, and then in 2007, it introduced its HPV vaccination program in school for girls. So I remember getting that jab in high school. In uh, 2013, we started rolling out the HPV vaccine to boys as well, Um, but but we know that there's still this huge gap there because cervical cancer disproportionately is is still affecting Indigenous women. The rate of deaths from cervical cancer women in in First Nations women is about four times as high as non-Indigenous women.
0: So why the gap? Do researchers have any idea of what is going to help improve these rates? So both uh, ANU and Cancer Council
3: researchers that I spoke to agree that cervical cancer screening, which some people might know as a pap smear, should be available to more people through self-collection. So at the moment, um, to get one of these self-collection kits, you have to be a woman over the age of 30 who has waited a long period between their last check. Um, and, and even then, they have to go into their GP and then request one of these, these testing kits. Um, so Dr Wap is saying that these kits work generally just as well, they're just as effective as tests ran by the doctor. And she wants them to be available to all women who want them, um, which she says will make it easier for women in remote communities to be tested because they often have the shame factor of having one local doctor who they then might run into down at the shops. Um, but it will also make it women for women for uh, easier for women who've been through trauma or are anxious about being tested
4: by a doctor. For me, one of the main game changers in recent years has been the availability of self collection. Um, The science is excellent and what it says is that
0: it's just as good as having a clinician collect your sample. So that means that women have power and control over being able to perform a test themselves. So, I mean, self-testing sounds like a really good solution, not just for Indigenous communities. Um, Is it available widely at the moment?
3: No, and and Dr Wop and and the Cancer Council researchers that we spoke to said that there isn't enough knowledge about the fact that there's even this option to have a self-collection test um, in the general public or with a lot of GPs. So they want uh, everyone to know that this is something that can be available for people that have waited a long time. Um, They're calling for it to be more readily available and they they want people to know that the science behind these these, um, self-collection tests are actually
0: really good. So you've spoken to, as well as speaking to the researcher who's looking into this, you've also spoken to a woman who's had cervical cancer. Uh, What did she have to say? So
3: we spoke to a young mum. Uh, she's got two young kids and her name's Ashley Williams. And she spent two years struggling to get her cervical cancer diagnosis. Um, by the time she was diagnosed, and she was only 26 at the time, um, Ashley was told that she might not live to spend Christmas with her family. Oh um, she, and, and she had a lot of great stories about how she remembered getting the HPV jab in school like I do, but she could, she had no idea what the jab was for. Um, and and she remembered being turned away from her GP countless times prior to her diagnosis and she's saying that there's this huge need to improve health messages and and about how these messages are communicated to Indigenous people and elders need to be involved in this conversation. So she says she wasn't shocked by the grim figures in this
4: report. Fortunately it doesn't surprise me. So I feel like education around health issues including cervical cancer should be promoted better at
0: schools that's Ashley Williams, a Wadi Wadi, Wundiy and Dharawal woman who had cervical cancer, and she's now an Aboriginal educator. So, Lauren, briefly, Ashley's obviously got first-hand experience here. Does she have ideas about what she thinks would improve testing rates?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So she's really calling for there to be this real effort to boost health literacy especially in remote and regional locations and she wants Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to be involved in that conversation and decision making not just being spoken at but with. She also backed the idea of self-collection kits being more readily available and she just wants to inspire Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women to talk about their bodies without shame. It's not
4: shame to talk about our services it's extremely important to get tested, get the cervical cancer test. You know, we need to do it, not only for us, but for our community and our mob.
0: That's Ashley Williams again. And thank you, Lauren, for joining us. Thanks for having me. Lauren Roberts is a health reporter in the ABC Science Unit. Now, the ABC has received tens of thousands of questions over the course of the pandemic, and one of the biggest recurring themes has been the effects of the pandemic on pregnancy and new babies. And a group of hospitals in Victoria is starting to provide some answers, studying the effects of Australia's most restrictive lockdown measures on maternity care. The Collaborative Maternity and Newborn Dashboard, or COMMAND project, brought together seven health services in metropolitan Melbourne and is providing a picture of the effects of a pandemic on pregnant women and their babies, including some outcomes that were unexpected. Associate Professor Lisa Hoy is coordinating the study and joins us now. Welcome Lisa.
4: Uh, Thank you for having me.
0: So what were the main trends you've noticed over the course of the pandemic? Um,
4: So I guess the first message was that we didn't see an increase in some of the outcomes we were afraid of, so we haven't seen an increase in stillbirths um, or um, adverse outcomes such as that. What we have seen is um, an increase in the birth weight of babies, which was something unexpected. When we set up this project to um, monitor outcomes during the pandemic, we were more worried about um, missing Fetal growth restriction, um, which we know increases the risk of stillbirth. We didn't see an increase in fetal growth restriction. We actually saw an increase in babies large for gestation, which was unexpected.
0: Is that a good thing or a bad thing?
4: Well, I guess everyone thinks that a big bouncing baby is always a good thing. It may not be a good thing, particularly if it's associated with. uh, other things such as gestational diabetes. And that is another thing that we have noticed has increased during lockdown. So in tandem with an increase in larger babies, there's been an increase in maternal gestational diabetes. So these babies are at high risk of um, birth trauma, um, delivery by emergency caesarean section and uh, low blood sugars after birth. So this, this is telling us that um, the pandemic restrictions have had a significant impact on maternal and newborn outcomes.
0: Have you been able to look at factors that might be driving these? Are you just looking at sort of the outcomes? Like, do you think it's maybe that people were more sedentary in lockdown or maybe didn't have the community support that they would usually have and perhaps... We're comfort eating, I don't know.
4: Um, yes, well, with our data set, we can't tease out exactly why this occurred, but it certainly is giving us um, some really good questions that we need to dive into with further research. So, um, it would make perfect sense that we saw a rise in maternal gestational diabetes and fetal weight because of reduced physical activity, because we know that's strongly associated with um, both gestational diabetes and um, baby's weight. Um, So that's uh, something that, really will be an intriguing thing to study um, in further depth. From other countries we know that there has been a rise in maternal comfort eating during pregnancy um, and there's plenty of researchers in in our field who are looking at all of these different aspects of how life changed for mothers and babies last year.
0: Right. So that's stuff that happens sort of during pregnancy and um, and at delivery. But can we talk about the birth trends as well? I was intrigued to see that there was a rise in babies born before arrival. So that's sort of where people weren't planning a home birth, but maybe they had the baby on the way. What could be behind that?
4: Yeah, that was another interesting thing that we noted. It was temporary, fortunately, but certainly in the middle of last year, there seemed to be a rise in the weekly number of babies either born at home, um, unplanned or on the way to hospital. It may be that women were afraid to come to hospital um, or wanted to delay the amount of time they spent in labour in hospital because we had quite strict um, restrictions on support people in labour. So women were limited to only one support person. And you know, this is just speculation, but perhaps women for that reason chose to stay at home longer where they could have their additional um, support people with them as long as possible.
0: So in general, birth numbers were down last year and you're forecasting a baby boom this year. What's behind that? Uh,
4: well, that's another interesting thing that we've seen in the, the pattern um, of our weekly birth rate. So the the median birth rate stayed fairly steady until just the last two months of last year. So November and December, we've seen the median number of births um, drop below um, what we would expect for quite a long period and that is consistent with um, patterns seen in previous epidemics. So in um, the MERS uh, epidemic, SARS, and also the Zika virus epidemics, those countries um, noticed a decline in birth rate followed by a boom. And I think that's what we're seeing here, we're seeing that decline in conceptions from March um, reflecting a reduced number of births um, in November and December last year. um, all the uh, maternity services in Melbourne now are reporting an increase in numbers of expected births for the first half of this year. So um, uh, I think we'll be making up for <laughs> making up for that, those um, fewer babies last year uh, this year.
0: Briefly, the health department already collects this data. Why have you and these these seven uh, groups of seven health services in Melbourne decided to do this now?
4: Um, Yes, that's right. We're actually collecting the data that is provided to the uh, health department every year um, through the mandatory um, data collection on all births. The reason why we formed this collaboration is because we wanted to have the data available um, in a more timely way than is typically available from the usual um, governmental uh, channels. Mm -hmm. And we also wanted to be able to look at um, different outcomes according
0: to... Um, concerns as they arose. Thank you so much for joining us on the Health Report. Associate Professor Lisa Hoy was from the Department of Perinatal Medicine at the University of Melbourne and the Mercy Hospital for Women. And it's mailbag time and back to help answer your questions is health reporter Lauren Roberts. Hi, Lauren. Hello. Thanks for having me back. Of course, you, our dear listeners, can ask your questions anytime. HealthReport at abc.net.au is the email address. And Lauren, this first one is for you and it's uh, it's for you because Lauren's based in Darwin. I don't know if you guys know that. And David's got a Darwin question. He says, I've just moved to Darwin and I've been warned not to garden after a downpour because I might get Nightcliff Gardener's disease meliodosis, meloidosis. Is this really something I should be preparing for or is it an old wives' tale? And an additional question from me, Lauren, how do you pronounce that word? Oh, great questions. Um, meliodosis.
3: Uh, is, okay. is hitting the first question off. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, this is very serious. Miliodosis uh, can kill. So there's diseases um, caused by germs that live in the soil here up in the top end um, and after a big torrential downfall because um, we're up in the tropics these germs come to the surface and they be, can be found in the mud and the water. So when people go out and they're, they're gardening with cuts and, and kind of abrasions on their hand, they, they can, these germs can sort of uh, enter their bodies. So basically so the health department says the best way to avoid this is if it's if it's raining and winding, stay outside. Um, don't go outside and tempt fate by digging up in your garden. Um, and if you do have to go outside, make sure you wear shoes. Um, and if you desperately need to garden um, after a big downpour, make sure that you're wearing gloves and, and proper protection. And to have a decent shower and get those soil and germs off afterwards. Um, and if you notice any any symptoms like a fever or a cough or something like that, just to make sure that you talk to your doctor straight away.
0: Right, so it's something that gets in through your skin, but the symptoms can include a cough.
3: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So interesting.
3: Yeah, it is very interesting, and it's one of the uh, the strange things about living up here in the tropics, where we're, obviously our climate is, is so much closer to somewhere like Indonesia than it is to uh, our siders, for example.
0: Right. So is this something that's unique just to the top end, or is this something that's seen in the tropics in other nations as well? Uh, it, it's quite common in the tropics, yeah. Have you got a question for me now? Yes, I do.
3: So I've got a a question from Trudy um, and she says, having been diagnosed with IBS by a gastroenterologist, um, he suggested that I go on a low FODMAP diet. Um, There are so many companies crashing into this trend to sell low FODMAP diet food. Is this this just a fad or um, is there a valid method of identifying foods that could be causing problems?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. And it does sound like a, a bit of a fad diet, but it's not. And But it's not actually a diet either. So I talked to Jane Weir from Monash University, who actually is one of the creators of the low FODMAP diet. It's actually an Australian thing. And even it sounds like food map, like sort of like, here's what to eat. But actually, the FODMAPs are what you want to avoid. Um, it stands for, um, bear with me for a second, fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides and polyols, which are short chain carbohydrates. They're basically sugars. And in people who have um, IBS, it's often that their small intestine doesn't absorb it well. And so the low FODMAP diet isn't a diet as much as a a diet therapy. So if you're healthy and you have no gastrointestinal disorders, it's not for you. Basically, um, the the sugars in foods are probably good for most of us. We don't want to restrict them unless they're necessary, but one in seven adults in Australia has IBS and sometimes they do need sort of an an intervention, a diet intervention to figure out what's going on because these sugars um, are basically sometimes inflaming the gut or causing symptoms that are really unpleasant things like abdominal pain, bloating. um, The correct term is altered bowel habits, but I think funny poos is probably the way to put it. Like, just it's just not very... It's not pleasant. Uh, And so, basically, in 75% of people who try the diet, according to Jane Weir, it's effective. So, basically, it's a process where you trying to identify which of the sugars your gut is sensitive to and eliminate them and so the first step is a couple of weeks where you just eliminate all of the FODMAPs and then the next step is a few weeks where you gradually reintroduce them to see which one might be triggering your symptoms and at what dose and then the third step is that you kind of personalise it but what's really important to Bear in mind is that you should only go on it if you've got a medical diagnosis, which it sounds like Trudy does have, and you should be working with a dietitian to go through these steps. And one of the things that um, Jane from Monash said is that they really don't want the diet to become the next gluten-free trend. like Similarly with the gluten thing, some people really can't eat it. It's not good for them. But for most people, foods containing gluten are really nutritious. And similarly with the FODMAPs, for most people, they're probably good for your gut, but in a small subset of people, they're not good. So that's the background with the low FODMAP diet. So Trudy, talk to your doctor, but a gastroenterologist suggesting this for IBS is pretty in keeping with what the diet was designed for. And now I've got a question for you, uh, Lauren. Megan's asking, when can I get the COVID vaccine at a pharmacy? Good question.
3: Um, So from March 22, uh, we're now in phase 1B. From phase 2A, so that's people that are... 50 to to 69, you'll be able to get your COVID vaccine at a pharmacy, or at least the plan is that we'll be able to get our COVID vaccine at the pharmacy. So that's really handy for a lot of people that maybe don't want to book a GP's appointment or people like myself that I just choose to go to the pharmacy to get my flu jab every year because it's a bit more, in my view, efficient. Mm -hmm. So there'll be heaps of people from phase 2A and and moving forward that will then be able to go to their local pharmacy and get their vaccine.
0: That's good to know. And I
3: have one last one for you. So this is a question from Isla. And this cue actually came in from our Insta account. So that's at ABC Health. Um, So do find us on Instagram if if you haven't already. There's a couple of interesting questions that get answered over there and you'll be able to find our stories as well. And she's asking if the vaccine reduces a person's symptoms but doesn't prevent them from spreading it, is it an issue with them not knowing that they're sick and therefore being less cautious and spreading it more? She said that she's very pro-vax. She just wants... Uh, have a little bit, she's just got a bit of curiosity and she wants to know a little bit more.
0: Absolutely. So it is really important. The, the primary goal for a vaccine, for the vaccines that we've got in this stage, is to reduce disease and save people's lives. And so if a vaccine's reducing a person's symptoms, then that is good news. But it, it, as Ayala says, it's possible that someone could still be spreading it. There's pretty good evidence to show that it does reduce the spread if you have fewer symptoms because you have you may be not sneezing or coughing or like aerosolizing your, like, producing those droplets that we know can. Transmit the virus, but then, as um, Ayala says, if they're going around, then perhaps they're actually coming into contact with more people than if they were feeling really rotten and just staying in bed. So, you know, it's a it's a problem, and so that's why we need to continue to have a multi pronged approach to addressing the virus here in Australia. And because the levels of the virus are so low here, we have a much lower problem than there is in many many parts of the world. But of course, people who work on the borders where they're most likely to catch the virus are the people who are first in line to be vaccinated. So perhaps there's a chance that they could still catch it, as Ayala points out. So we need to be vaccinating people to save their lives, but we also need to be continuing to screen and test people, who especially those in high-risk environments, just in case there is the ability for them to still transmit the virus going on. And one of the things that I think we talk a lot about, the fact that we don't know yet whether these vaccines can prevent transmission... And one of the reasons we don't know that is because the studies into their efficacy haven't looked at that. So it doesn't mean that they don't stop transmission. It just doesn't mean that we've studied it well enough to be able to say definitively. And there does seem to be pretty early evidence that in addition to the thing about people not coughing and all that sort of thing, they probably have less viral load. Like, fewer particles of the virus in their bodies which means they probably are less likely to transmit the virus than someone who's fully infected. So yeah it's a potential problem but um, they're probably and a big probably is like floating around in my answer here there's a pretty good chance by the way the data that we've got so far that they are a lot less likely to transmit the virus than if they were infected without having been vaccinated. Oh thanks for that that's really interesting. That's right. So yeah, thanks for asking that question. As Lauren said before, check us out on Instagram at ABC Health. And of course, you can ask us your questions via the normal channel, which is healthreport at abc.net.au. And we'll see you next time.